Hello and welcome everyone, I'm Dick Laurent. It's Ironic Rip here. And this is the first episode of our podcast, Paradise Cultura. So here at Paradise Cultura, we've come to the point that we think that there has been a stagnation, not only in the presentation of culture, but also in the consumption of it, right? Whether mm-hmm. that be media, like any type of media, like music, film, uh, TV, whatever it may be, that there's the sort of malaise that exists over it, right? right. So we kind of... We think there's a necessary voice to be broadcasted out there to, you know, clarify the gap that exists between the art that exists objectively and the people who consume it at some level, whether or not you recognize it implicitly or not, like the subjective consumption of it. So here we're kind of here to bridge that gap and hope to make what otherwise we consider like esoteric or avant-garde art to be accessible and approachable um, to the to the layman here. Yeah, we really sort of just... There, like you mentioned, there's a real sort of cultural malaise that has taken over in the past few years. And what we seek to do is just identify art that really does stand out, present and past, like, you know, good or bad and sort of try to identify why. We won't cover you know, every single film ever or whatever. We're, we're more specialized podcasts than that, but what we seek to do is look at you know, why a particular piece of art stands out and what it means and what values it really provides to the world. And so we chose for our first episode to cover Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, because... Very exciting, right? Just in theaters. Yeah, yeah. We chose it because, you know, obviously Martin Scorsese is a really important filmmaker in the course of not only just, you know, American cinema, but he does so much stuff for general film awareness and... Sort of. I think Guillermo del Toro kind of put it like very succinctly. He said, "Like if God offered me a, a chance to shorten my lifespan in exchange to extend Scorsese's, I would take it." Right. Cause he said that he like he he lives and he breathes cinema. Like he's always defended the art of it and always argued against the industry of it. And I think that's a very potent way to say that. You know, Scorsese has definitely been a voice in the wilderness, kind of in this in the scope of American cinema. Um, to be that kind of um, definitely not the first definitely not going to be the last but he's definitely been um, an important torchbearer in terms of you know continuing like the eternal flame if you will yeah and he also does a lot of stuff for world cinema with like film preservation and just general sort of outreach and he also does like production for people's stuff really just you like you can't be like a bigger proponent of cinema than him because like he knows every film that ever existed basically and he knows like everything about everything with film right but you know it really sort of helped obviously that because we did happen to read or um, read the book that this film is based on and it really did help because you know we we did go into this you know wanting to see what was it that he saw that made this story interesting to him? We wanted to sort of just look through his perspective and see why he came to the decision that he did. And the book, it's different from the film. 
but it covers some of the same ground and it tells this really sort of haunting but also fascinating story about what certain things like greed and detachment can do to people and how communities can respond to adversity that they face. And I found it really interesting, and I, I do think he made a really right decision doing this. Him and DiCaprio decided to not follow the basis of the book, which it opens by talking about Molly Burkhart and her story a bit before moving on to the story of Tom White, who is an early FBI agent. And you sort of see how important this case is to the FBI and all the stuff that went on with their investigation about the murders in the Osage. I will say, like, like I said, it's they made a right decision to change their perspective from what was initially going to be a very sort of standard whodunit investigation type thing centering around the FBI and making it more focused on the dynamics of the people involved with the events that occurred and who had an active role in their occurrence. One of the things I really want to talk about first, just before we get into anything else, I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, the length of this movie, but I really didn't have any problems with it. I know it's, you know, three hours and 26 minutes sounds really daunting, right? But, you know, you look at a movie like uh, The Godfather Part Two, which is just a few minutes shorter, or you look at something like Gone with the Wind, which is longer, or uh, Lawrence of Arabia, that's longer, or um, Once Upon a Time in America, which again is longer, and those are all considered these really great films that nobody really, maybe Gone with the Wind, I guess, but nobody really complains about the length of them. Um, it's really sort of interesting to see how, you know, because we have Oppenheimer that came out earlier this year and that was three hours and that did very well. Um, I don't expect this, I don't expect this film to have, find the same sort of success, um, commercially, but it's been, know about long shot. yeah, no, I just, it doesn't have the same sort of viral marketing or anything like that. And it's going to have a shorter, Sadly, there is no. Um, Barbenheimer to compliment this one. Yeah, right. And then, but there was talk of like Dune, like that's that was supposed to come out the same day as um, this movie, right? And there was like right. talks of like we could have had Killers of the Flower Dune at this point. Right, right, yeah, right. But you know, it's it's an interesting little thing because you look at Avatar, which came out uh, last year, that made a ton of money, and that was Avatar two, and that was over three hours long. Obviously, a few years ago, you have you know Avengers Endgame, which is not one of the great films of all time, that went on to you know break a record for the time for you know the most money ever made um, at the box office for a film. So it's it's been a really interesting sort of discourse about runtimes for a movie. Obviously, Apple has a lot of money at their disposal, and they have a streaming service they want to sell. So that you know, really sort of they'll take what they can get as far as you know, long movies made by an auteur director because they also have the Napoleon movie that's coming out um, with with Ridley Scott. So you know, it's just it's been an interesting little discussion that's gone on. But I didn't really have a problem with it. I didn't have to check the time at all. I didn't you know have to think about oh I need to go on a bathroom break or whatever. Like the film flew by. Uh, for me, the length was, you know, it was fine, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, it's definitely good to see that there is like a more a move in a direction to um, you know kind of uh, push the boundary of what uh, acceptable runtime is, right? right? So, you know, it's we're getting to the point where it's okay to, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, market and, you know, ultimately um, put out a, you know, three and a half, um, you know, hour film about uh, such a bleak topic. You know, there's obviously like a dynamic between like this and Oppenheimer's like runtime, right? Because right. with the Oppenheimer thing, you had this like really kind of, you know, blockbuster kind of um, presentation of the marketing and everything about how this is like the. Um, the new next thing like with Nolan right um Mm -hmm. being like this trailblazer in terms of like what cinema like what can be you know tolerable in terms of what you put out there but I think that um with this there's a there's just pure like bleak like um pure there's a pure bleak atmosphere to it like there's no redemptive moment to it which um considering the long the runtime with that it's um you know you you, you kind of it's very uncompromising there's no yeah point where um it sort of gives up on anything it's just this is the story that scarcity wants to tell and he has all the resources in the world at his disposal and he's gonna tell it and you're going to like it or you're not going to like it, but you're just going to have to you know, take it for what it is. And, you know, for a guy like him, that's you know, really nice to see that. He obviously has a lot of cachet to his name because, you know, even though he hasn't been like the super profitable guy, like he's not James Cameron. He's still like he's the guy that you know, made all these really big movies. Like he's made Taxi Driver. He's made Raging Bull. He's made Goodfellas. He's made you know, The Wolf of Wall Street. Like he is a really important name. And, um, you know, I don't expect to see a bunch of other directors getting to make three hour movies if they want to anytime soon. But it's still just nice to see that um, someone like him is getting the opportunity to do what he wants because there's been a lot of times in his career where that hasn't been the case and where he's really had to fight to be able to do what he wants and he's had to make movies they didn't really want to make so it's just really nice to see you know towards the end that he doesn't really have to deal with any of that stuff and just do what he wants yeah, and that's definitely kind of on display here um, in more ways than one, um, because you know, prior to the release of this film, he had um, uh, comments that he was putting out there in interviews and um, and, and so forth that uh, this is a very like morbid film to him, um, or at least he's in a very morbid state of mind, right, in terms right. Of, of approaching his own mortality, his own, um, you know, his own eventual death, right? Right, very you know, he's trying to do as much as he, Yeah, he's trying to do as much as he can with the time he has left. And, right. um, and so here we we kind of see that translated and we'll kind of touch on what happens there, the, um, penultimate, um, uh, scene in this film before it ends. Right. And, right. um, there's definitely more to, um, uh, go from there. We'll address that as we get to it. Right. Right. So, you know, I do want to, you know, since we've covered that, I do want to just give a couple just 
opening thoughts and then we'll get into the story so yeah going my initial thoughts on this movie is that like going to it like there is a certain like expectation that this was going to be like an era defining like blockbuster um addition to his um uh, catalog uh Yes, it's catalog, right? The word lost me there. Um, but yeah, um, but what you kind of get is like this subversion of like expectations and it's like this really kind of not really reserved uh, work, but it's definitely, you know, he, it's like he, he fakes you out with all the punches that he's throwing, right? right. It's like, um, and you, you really don't know what to expect at that point. I think that's kind of like the beauty of like the, um, of the entire like work that you end up do getting because it's very like I said it's very bleak there's like no redemptive moment to it and um, you know you, you take it as it comes and you just don't know where he's taking you when you initially start this film right I'll admit on my end I did have you know, pretty high expectations because you, you see, like all the pieces that you see on the table between the cast and you know, like he has this, you know, really large budget that, you know, he can do whatever he wants with. And it, like he had a lot of momentum because you look at his past few films, you know, Wolf of Wall Street was a really big hit at the time in 2013. Um, then Silence, which didn't really do well commercially. And it did like it didn't like have the most noise around it, but if you know what it what, what the story it tells is, and if you watch it, it's a really beautiful film. It's a very meaningful film. Um, and then you have you know The Irishman, which again not very commercially successful, but there was a lot of um, it got a lot of recognition, um, and that was a whole thing where it's sort of like his final chapter. And like the Martin Scorsese cinematic universe of uh, gangsters, right? Um, but it's like I did have a lot of expectations. Um, this film, both just sort of come out in the open and say this: this film is not, you know, Taxi Driver or Goodfellas or Raging Bull or like on my end at least. I don't expect this to um, stand out over time in quite the same way. But it's still going to be a great late career um, thing, like when people look back on it in the future. Um, and just sort of what the story is about is like it's going to stand out for that reason alone. And, you know, if there is some sort of thing where you see more sort of similar stories come out or you see them, especially like with... Um, if they start being made by um, native uh, filmmakers and everything, then you'll really sort of, like this will really sort of matter in that regard. Um, but on my end, I really appreciated this film for the fact that, like we've said, it's a very uncompromising thing that just it knows what it wants to be and it just does it. Um, and also it's very, um, it, it, it very much knows generally what it wants to do and it sets out to do it. What it does is it paints this really sort of um, interesting dark picture of things like what love can look like when you're involved with really sort of dark actions against the people that you're supposed to love. And it 
talks a lot about you know, greed and sort of how much you can value other people and still, you know, be selfish. Like it also goes into how, you know, for a time, like some really awful acts can be done and, you know, nothing happens and it can, like these things can go on for a long time. But I do want to now sort of get into the film. So we open with showing that this tribe in Oklahoma, the Osage, had lost their land. And even with that, they had still been um, favored by fortune because the um, reservation that they did manage to get happened to have oil on it. And they very quickly became a very wealthy group of people. And you see this really like nice montage showing just like the sheer wealth of this society and how um, they were like, you know, the richest group per capita on earth at the time, right? And like, it's just- They were victims of circumstance. Right. And- Both in a good and a bad way. (laughs) Right, right. But, you know, it's like very prosperous. And, you know, what happens when you're prosperous is other people want to get in on it, right? So, unfortunately, the government, even though, you know, they own this, you know, bit of land and stuff and they have oil on it, the government deemed them incompetent to spend their own money. So they would have to get approval in order to, like, spend certain, like, X amount of money on certain things and stuff. And they had to have like a legal guardian that was responsible for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you would see these things where it's like, um, you know, they want to collect their money. And then like immediately as soon as they collect their money, it's like, oh, um, I-, I can take your I can take your photograph or um, I need you to buy like this thing from me. And then, you know, if you do that, like any favor you need or whatever, just buy another thing for me. Right. Um, like it's like, you see these people that, you know, don't belong to them that are immediately just sort of trying to capitalize. And in this environment, we get to see a man by the name of Ernest Burkhart, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio arrive because he had fought in the Great War and um, he's coming back to his family in Oklahoma. He reaches his uncle, William Hale, who's played by Robert De Niro. Which the, the funny part of this movie is uh, this, what, set um, in the 70s now, right? He, yeah, he's now turned 80, but, you know, shot in yeah. the 70s. Um, and he's like playing this like younger guy, right? He looks at the side by side, kind of like a jarring, like night and day almost. Right. It's like the guy is um, supposed to be in like his forties and fifties. They're in like the actual you know story of this, but I mean it it works fine. Like and it almost kind of works better if he is like an older man because you see sort of what motivates him and the action it takes, and it almost makes more sense that way. You know, to see him like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this, so um, De Niro is really great in this film. I, I just wanted to, like, start out by saying that before, you know, like we get into anything else. This is not, you know, the dirty grandpa uh, De Niro. Like, he actually really tries here. Like, to be this, like, wholesome, like, 
kind of um, patriarch almost. Yeah, he's like a really big sort of um, power player in Osage County, right? And so he's doing, all, he has a lot of like patronage uh, programs and stuff. And he's like a really active sort of like pillar of the community, right? And I, I think, you know, as we see, like not everything is uh, good with him. Um, but I think Nero really does a great job in this role. He really does cover the nuances of this character very well. I would say it probably is a better performance than what he does in The Irishman. Now granted, The Irishman, you know, later on, um, when he has a lot to play off of with uh, Joe Pesci and Al Pacino, he really does a great job there. But, like, he's really solid in this role. Like, he, like, from the first time you see him to the last moment, like, he really owns it. But so, you know, he meets his uncle, Ernest does. It's very interesting, um, their dynamic. What William Hill does is, because you know, Ernest's character, he fought in the Great War, in World War One, and he sustained an injury, which made it so that he couldn't do any sort of manual labor. He hires him as a taxi driver. And what he does is he really sort of tries to push him to um, engage with this community. And he doesn't, he does, a, he does a really good job of not explicitly saying what his motivations are like fully. But you can, you can see there is some level of scheme that he has worked out in his mind. So not only that, but you kind of get these like exhortations from uh, Hale to Ernest to not en engage in like drinking or any roughhousing and uh, just, you know, shenanigans, if you will. Right. William Hale, he, he has a very interesting sort of thing that he does in this film because he's very complimentary about these people. And so, like, he, he really... What he wants Ernest to do is not be a dumb person, which is a little bit of a challenge um, for that character to fulfill that. Because he's kind of dumb as a brick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it's kind of funny seeing Leo play this guy that's not very smart. Like, he's done it before. Like, if you watch uh, Django Unchained, um, where he's supposed to be this plantation owner, but he's not. he doesn't even really, like, run things there, right? And like, I, like he even had almost has like the same teeth, like is like the guy like ugly him up for this role, as um, his character in Django Unchained. Um, but no, like he he really sort of he wants Ernest to make himself known to these people, but not in a bad way. And not only that, but also he's kind of like hinting to the fact that he wants him to hook up with one of the Osage women, right? Yeah. Um, he he wants he wants him to um, become like really integrated with the community. So what we see with Ulio, like we've been saying, you know, he's not really a um, smart man. But so he he picks up this one Osage woman by the name of Molly Kyle, who is played by Lily Gladstone. Who um, I hadn't seen anything and that she'd done before this, but she does a really great job in this film. She's very powerful. She, like, even when she doesn't have any lines in the scene, like, every sort of shot that you, like, put on her, like, you, like, she does such a great job of physically acting. Um, and, like, you can just read her mind just off of her expressions and stuff. But so, 
Yeah, Ernest, he he picks up this woman, uh, Molly, and over time, he starts to really have an interest in her, and Hale obviously wants them to pursue it, but Leo's not the smartest guy in this film, and so Molly, she can, because like Hale says, these are very smart people. She can kind of read through um, him a little bit, and um, she she even calls him um, a coyote who wants money, right? But Leo, you know, Ernest, he really sort of still, like even with this sort of awkward, like charm offensive that goes on, it does work because she really sort of thinks um, there's more to him than that. Like he, she thinks he's just gonna, you know, settle down and, you know, just, start a family and stuff, right? Um, like, she doesn't, like, see... Like, if you call him, you know, a coyote versus, you know, a snake or whatever, it's very... You know, coyotes, they're not the most aggressive animals. You know, they'll, they'll take what they can get, obviously, but they're not... Um, like, if you look at the food chain and stuff, they're not that high up there, right? And the capitulation here is, like, kind of subtle, like, sudden, too. It's like... Uh, one moment, you know, he's a dirty coyote who's just um, looking out her money, right? But then, you know, next, before you know it, he's being invited in for, like, soup or whatever. I mean, no, you know? I think it's, it's like, because the thing is, obviously, like, you're not, it's not happening all at once, right? Like, it's not just, like, you know, one yeah. day is this thing, and then the next day, oh, well. No, I mean, there's, like, a great sort of scene of him in the car, like, you know, driving her, trying to, like... Uh, like poke and prod and stuff and see like you know like if she's single and everything right I'm sure like over time like even though like he's not you know the most subtle guy ever like she probably did you know she probably saw something in him right like there, there's gotta be like something there um still and so um you know the Nero, uh, the Nero's really happy about this. Um, around the same time, you really sort of start to like slowly piece together what Nero's in ga- uh, what Hale's in game is, um, because what Hale wants to do is use a system of inheritance to eventually get all of the money that is owed um, through oil rights to him and his family. And the way he seeks to do this is to have a lot of tragedies happen that he indirectly benefits from and then eventually will benefit directly from. And he is using, um, it's not just him, but he uses Ernest um, to do it. He also uses um, Ernest's brother Byron and some other people. But it's this really sort of draw like elaborate, you know, long thought out thing for him, where he has a plan and he thinks he can. He he never wavers from this. I noticed like he never thinks that at any point he's gonna fail or anything like that, right? Like he's extremely confident that he will get this money and that there's nothing that can stop it. Like he, there's even a line that um, sort of like midway through the film um, that reminded me a lot of John Wayne and the Searchers, where he's, he's talking about it's like it's gonna like it, this will happen as sure as the turning of the earth. Um, 
and you know John Wayne and the Searchers. That's a very sort of uh, dark uh, role that Wayne played at that time in the fifties. It also it's a movie that he's taken a lot of influence from. Like if you look at Taxi Driver, that's kind of like a um, like a modern for that time take on the Searchers. Um, but you know what happens is even though even though Ernest is sort of in part in uh, Hale's plans, he's still really in love with Molly, and so they get married. And this, like, of course, like this, uh, eventually it develops into like a point of absurdity. It's like um, there's this like jarring like juxtaposition between this guy who's like who seemingly loves his wife decently enough you know right but then also this guy who's like who's like you know willing to contribute to this plot and and what have you and so it, as the film progresses it's kind of interesting to see that kind of juxtaposition like i said become more and more like jarring right right and, uh, and there's a particular scene and, you, and you'll know what i'm talking about later on um that this it reaches a climax, right? Right. Um, right. Well, it's it's one. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. As we sort of mentioned, you know, Hale has this plan to effectively benefit from the deaths of a lot of Osage people, and as we see, you know, his plan, like he, he doesn't really ex- never he never ex- like just says, "Oh, I'm like I am way bad guy. I'm gonna kill them all." Right. But what he does is he, like, he always sort of schemes and he gets other people to do these things, but he he really sort of uses a lot of, like, known care like, known things, like, about people and tries to use it to um, get away with murder. Because there's stuff like one of Molly's sisters dies from, um, it's supposed to be a wasting illness, which then also affects her mother. And there's stuff like her sister, another one of her sisters gets killed. And this sister is a very sort of licentious woman who also likes to live dangerously. And it's like at that point, like the the phrasing becomes like, you know, Anna Brown, you know, that's who she was. She was brown to, you know, get into the fight with the wrong people at some point. Right. Um, to kind of divert attention away. Right. Right. Um, which, uh, it, you know, Anna's death becomes kind of this decisive, like, turning point in the film, um, where it's not only this, like, external thing in the community, right? Mm-hmm. But um, this becomes, like, a very real issue for um, Molly Burkhart and her family, right? And right. then it, it, we'll, we'll see later on that as, like, the closer, like, the walls close in, um, for, for Molly Burkhart and her family, right? But, like, the walls start to close in on, on the conspirators as well. Right, right. And so, you know, like, his whole thing is he, he like, he wants it to just be a lot of sort of uh, coincidences. And it's, you know, like, Anna Brown's death specifically, it's spurring some stuff to happen. Like, Molly hires this really expensive private investigator that's supposed to be super qualified to look into things. There's this meeting between a lot of, like, tribal leaders um, in the community um, where they have a guy that they're supposed to send out to D.C. It's going to, you know, tell people what's going on out there. Also, like, not only is he, you know, trying to really figure out what's going on, 
like just having all of these deaths, it really um, puts her in a dark place mentally because it's you know it's really hard to trust a lot of people. And you don't get this like this picture more clear than like by the time they like her and Ernest go down to the train station to meet the private eye they just hired. Um, this really like kind of comedic like. It was like caricature of a private eye, right? right. Um, and she says this really, like, really interesting, this really impactful line um, that really kind of stuck with me um, throughout the, the remainder of the film. Like, it's not the the best scene by any like stretch of the imagination, but it is like one of the like, defining character moments. You know, she says, um, and I'll quote it here: "That evil surrounds my heart. Many times I've cried in this evil round. My heart comes." out my eyes and I say it's gone this evil but again it comes I close my heart and keep what is good there but hate comes again into my heart and it's like you kind of see this like crescendo of of like conflicting passions um, here um, in in Molly because you know she kind of she tries to take refuge in her family um, and you know the goodness that remains in the community right but it's still this threat is like lurking right outside the door and there's just no way to prevent it from you know ultimately upending um, her life you know as it stands and it's like I said this moment really doesn't last too long once they meet this private eye but you know it it does kind of serve to act as infliction point wherein you know Molly becomes this multi-dimensional um you know, figure in the film and not just like the, um, the, you know, the female protagonist to the film. And it's like, as the role would suggest her, you know, yeah, her, yeah, her but she's being. not just like a flat character. Right. Like she, she has a lot of, you know, internal struggle, you know, at the same sort of time, like while we get to see sort of more of the sort of plotting and scheming that goes on like there's a thing where Ernest tries to get his car stolen so that he can profit off of uh, insurance fraud and that because you know because he's not a very smart guy that doesn't go well and so then there's all these other things like there's these other murders that you know like can't can't be done as initially planned because of how that's messed up at the same sort of time because Hale, he really at no point does he ever want to give up on this plan, right? Like he's completely just bought in and he has no sort of um, second thoughts or whatever. And there's no off-ramp at this point, too. Right, right. So one of the things he does is, because he's what he's been doing is he's been having all the inheritance rights go to um, Molly. Which will then um, go to um, Ernest and their kids. He decides, you know, having her be like the last of her um, family and just, you know, living out her life, that, that's not good enough. And, you know, he really sort of puts Ernest in this tough spot because, like, he's really upset that she's been um, running around trying to, like, do stuff to look into what's going on. Um, like, there's this whole, like, scene where they're at a Masonic Lodge and uh, Hale spanks him with, like, this paddle and stuff. Like, this, and they kind of, like, cements that, like, patriarch figure, right? Um, that he's this, like, um, 
he's like this great father, right? right? And he's like disciplining his child who's like disobeyed him or something like that. And like the image, the imagery is kind of funny because this is like grown man. It's like he's on his knees and he's like, has some like dignity and like, you know. Right. Like, it's really humiliating. Stand up for yourself. Right. It's really humiliating stuff, right? And, you know, like he always, like he makes him call him, you know, King Hale and stuff, right? Which is a very sort of like, you know, that's a real sort of, you know, king as a title. It's a very strong title. But, you know, what he does, and like I was supposed to say that that room um, that's in, it really reminded me of, you know, Eraserhead, the whole thing where like his, uh, Jack Nance's head falls off and then like, you know, the baby, the baby's head grows, right? On like his mm-hmm. on his body, that whole like checkered floor thing, that really reminded me of that. And you know, you look at that, and you look at the things like oil briggery and stuff. That's all the work of uh, Jack Fisk, who, if you don't know, he he started out early in his career. He did some stuff with David Lynch, like he did Eraserhead. He did some stuff with like Terrence Malick, and like he did There Will Be Blood, which visually there's some real like comparable stuff um between the two because that that sort of said early 20th century in like california which so again you know out west and stuff and that's a lot the whole story is about oil too but no like that was just like an interesting little thing and also i just want to like point out now that since we're talking about this roger Rigo, um pieto he has a pretty good job with the uh, cinematography for this movie like the color palette isn't too crazy it's Sort of, you know, like natural, like not muted, but um, it's not very like pronounced. Um, but there's a lot of like really nice um, stuff for like the environment, like the way that they shoot the environments and stuff, and a lot of the lighting in the film is really beautiful. In this film, Prieto, he also did the work for um, Barbie this year, so you know he's had a pretty good year so far. That's such a sway. What? That's such a sway. Yeah, yeah, it's a real, like, you know, like, it's a really great year, right? But, you know, so what Hill does, because he's really just upset with Ernest and he, like, wants him to be, like, the man of the house and stuff, right? Is because, you know, as, like, as we established, those age are very wealthy people. And they're so wealthy that Molly gets to have the insulin prescription at a time when like very few people in the world have them. And so what Hale's plan is, is to gradually weaken and then uh, eliminate Molly by poisoning her insulin supply. And what he does is he doesn't tell Ernest outright that his plan is to kill Molly. He just wants to slow her down. Which, you know, Ernest, because he's not, he doesn't really realize what that means. He goes along and he trusts the plan there. It's, it's really interesting to see how he, like, goes along with this plan. He doesn't, he, like, he doesn't interrogate it at all. He doesn't really think at any point, like... Oh well, this is like actually like killing my wife. Like he, like he, it does bother him seeing like her her situation deteriorate, but he doesn't like really fully connect the dots. 
it's like he, he's such a weak man in terms of his willpower that he's willing to go along with this and play the fool right right but then it's like on the other hand he's like has this like dissociation of like oh it's like my wife is suffering i have to be back home with my wife right right and especially you know, at this point they're it's like their marriage is in such like a state of like disrepair. It's like that, um, quoting the Godfather part two, it's like their marriage was an abortion, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, you kind of get a sense of that because you know, like even like back then, as marriage had retained some of its you know traditional context, that um, you know, marriage is a sacred thing and um the man provides for his family right right um but here it's like he he's destroying it and like he's he's breaking down the the house that he built and established and it's you know you kind of snap back into reality here it's like these are real people and like this like this is someone's life you know and and yeah yeah it's very interesting because like he like he can identify that you know this is really causing the problems but he never stops he just like keeps doing it you see some more stuff like there's this really big thing where there's this other guy that's you know he married one of molly's sisters and then she passed and then he married another of her sisters and you know Hale really wants to get rid of this guy because you know if if he gets to, you know, just outlive his wife by any sort of means, that money doesn't go to Molly. It goes to him and his own, you know, kids and stuff, right? So, Hale identifies this as a threat that needs to be taken care of. And you really sort of just see that Ernest, he's just so complicit that, like, even, you know, after there's this really horrific bombing that's done he still doesn't break like he doesn't depart from Hale's plan at any point like he's just all in and it's really sort of at the same time all this like this sort of thing it really you know hurts Molly because that's her like at that point like she has to know like she's like the last member of her family and so you know as we see with Molly's situation as she continues to deteriorate and deteriorate um she becomes bedridden and it's like every shot you see of her it's just this really just brutal like like physical condition and everything right like it just gets worse and worse pretty much every time we see her right and it's it's like like how can you keep doing this to your wife like it's like we kind of get this kind of allusion to something similar happening to her sister Minnie, right? But we right. don't see like the full like scope of it, right? right? But here we see it in its full like carnage and its depravity, right? And so, yeah. Um, here it's you know in your face, and this is kind of where an interesting conversation about you know Lily Gladstone's performance comes up. Um, you know, since she does um, spend a sizable chunk of this film, kind of. Deep Rehabilitated, and you know, you do kind of have to draw back a little bit in terms of your performance if you're playing uh, in a role like this, right? Right, yeah, it's like, um, she's just it's like every time you like it, she it's a lot of just she'll get like a shot on her face or whatever, and she just has to really sell it. And it's every time that you know there's a shot on her face, she happens to you know do it very well. 
Um, and it's around this time that she has these sort of like visions stuff because one of the things that we see with his, with her mother um, while she's still alive is um, there's this thing about an owl and it's sort of um, it's a um, like an omen for like this realization that the outsiders are killing them off and you know eventually she has it too and it's as her, you know, as Ernest is about to um, give her another dose of insulin. And, like, this, like, the way it's sort of communicated, it reminded me a bit of, um, you know how in, like, Twin Peaks, there's all the stuff with the owls, where it's, like, the owls aren't what they seem. And, like, it's it's stuff, like, with Bob, right? And not only that, but, like, this kind of, the small insertion kind of, you know, paints a more spiritual tone to the film, right? Right. Which, you know, um, I think that that's a... You know, now that you, now that I think about it, it's like that, that's kind of like an underrealized like aspect of the film, and uh, because you know the, the natives like in the very beginning they touch on their beliefs. You know, like the the son is father, right? Or no, fire is father, right? Right. And son is grandfather, mm-hmm. and moon is like mother, right? Mm-hmm. And so forth. You can, you kind of get this like you know this brief inter- introduction to their like their religiosity and everything but you don't really you know see this again until this you know this thing starts coming up and you know um and at the beginning of this film specifically there's this like really kind of interesting moment where they're burying a pipe right Mm -hmm. and um they're you know they're essentially mourning like the passing of the times and that their children will not speak as they did they will not right. believe as they did and like dress and act as they did right and it's this kind of it's the like, loss of the culture yeah it's like this epoch like turning like turning of the times right and it's just um uh, a really kind of dynamic picture to paint in terms of um in terms of like building like the Osage into this film as like a real concrete identity, like people with an identity. Yeah, yeah. No, I do think there's like one of the things you could have done, you know, would be to expand on that a little bit. But um, like when they do like have those things, um, they're more sort of you know mystical and stuff like that. It really works well. The film really shows sort of how far that Hale and all these sort of people that are like really self-interested will go. Because at that point, you kind of realize like they're destroying like the soul of this community. Right. Like they want to. It's like basically they want to just completely like eradicate them and just crush and defeat them. And you know, it's just it's really um, in a way just fascinating to see how someone like Ernest, you know, can exist in this world where because he's not like a real sort of um, thinker, and he sort of just goes along with the plan and all that stuff. Like he's in a like he's in a very odd spot where like he does love his wife. Um, like you, you like you can tell about that. But at the same time, he's so complicit in the destruction of, like, everything she knows. And, like, at least to a certain extent, like, complicit in her own destruction. You could almost argue that, like, the tragedy of, like, Ernest as a character in this, like, work as a film, right, is, like, his absolution, like, his absolution does not come 
at any point and it's like he exists in like this purgatorial state of like um you know having this um fidelity to your wife and the care diligence you owe to her but you also you're stuck in like your your crimes and your vices and from those things like there's no return after being committed yeah and you know it's just you know it's he really sort of lets Molly deteriorate um, just because he has um, no, like, sort of, like, will to resist what Hale wants. And because of, you know, Hale's sort of scheming and stuff, like, there's the big, you know, explosion with, like, her last uh, sister and everything, her house. The FBI, like, gets officially involved. Like, we see Agent Tom White, he's a really big part of the book, comes in, like, about, like, two and a half hours, like, in or something like that, played by Jesse Plemons, who does a pretty good job of what he's given in a role. It's not a lot, but he still just does well with what's there. And it's interesting how, like, Ernest, he, even though he's not, you know, a smart guy, like, he clocks immediately, like, oh, we're in like real trouble here. Well, Hale, all he's a little too flamboyant. Yeah, no, like he, his problem is he's a little like too, like he, like um, there's a whole, there's this great scene at night where there's supposed to be like a party out in public and stuff, right? Where Ernest is really panicking and trying to talk to Hale about what's going on, while Hale is just like, like he's telling him to control himself. And you just see how, like, basically defeated Ernest is at the end of it. But, you know, Hale, what he tries to do is he just tries to... Because he's always, in this movie, he's always scheming. He's always plotting. Um, anybody that can, like, be a liability to him, he um, tries to play against each other. Like, he has stuff like, oh, well, there's this bank that you should rob. And then, you know, turns out that bank is fully, you know prepared for something like that and you know please show up and bust the guy that does that or oh hey you should rob the store and then like he tells the store owner oh hey there's these people that are gonna rob you and you know like he plays off people like that it's like playing all the angles right right like he tries to do stuff like he tries to take out um an insurance policy on his own ranch fire not to mention but like the the scene that you just mentioned with like the uh um, insurance fraud, right? I right. feel like that's probably like the best scene in the movie, right? To me, yeah, it's um, really beautiful on a um, presentational level. The way that it's handled, I mean, it's like um, it's like you're seeing straight out of hell. Like not only like with the atmosphere that's being like conveyed here, but like just from the imagery of like hail looking out over his domain, and you see these like. Um, uh, these workers, like with this, like this, like really odd, like body language, right? Right. And it looks like they're very, like, like fake working, like they're fake, like tilling the land or whatever, but they're not actually doing anything. Like I'm not sure if you're familiar, but like you know, like in Renaissance paintings, like you see like these people with like these very like dramatic like stances, right? Right. right. Um, it, it looks exactly like that. Um, to kind of paint these like drastic like images of like humanity and just like human movement if that makes sense right and then you know you see another thing with you know Ernest and Molly at this time right yeah uh, and then like 
you kind of see like the finality of um, uh, Ernest sins um, when it comes to what he's done to not only like his wife but his wife's family as well and he sees like no other like means of, of solving himself but like to poison himself um, and you know to take to bear the weight if you will um, of what he's done and like they're just sitting there in like anguish and um, you see like the fire burning outside of the house and it's like this really kind of ghoulish yeah, atmosphere it, it, it looks a lot like hell's outside um, yeah right like it's really like a very dark like vibe there Jesse Clemens, he's you know, trying to get around and stuff, and you know, eventually they get earnest. And what they do is they uh, deprive him of sleep, and they they play one of Hale's guys against him in order to get you know a lot as much testimony out of him as possible. Because you know, if you get one person, then you know, it, no, nobody wants to just sort of be like the even if like they know they're gonna um, take the fall for something they're just going to start dragging in more people so that they aren't, like, the only person that suffers consequences, right? So, like, you see that, where, like, even if, you know, someone knows they're going to get, you know, life in prison or whatever, they want to drag in other people. It's, like, one of those types of, like, crime stoppers where they offer the guy McDonald's, right? Right. And then, like, immediately everyone everyone starts, like, turning on each other. Right, right. Because at that point, like, why not, right? But, you know... Eventually, they do sort of just weigh down on Ernest, and he agrees to testify in court. But then, then you know, we have you know Brendan Fraser as uh, Hale's lawyer. He's this really um, how do I want to say it? Like histrionic guy. Um, He's in hysterics, essentially. Right, right. He's really theatrical. Um, Guy. And with this edition, like the Scorsese Cinematic Universe is now like complete. Yeah, no, now we now we've got the whale, um, right? But no, um, you know what he does is he sort of um, like even though you know Ernest has agreed to testify, he still like he he hasn't fully turned on Hill yet, right? And so that's sort of what they do is they really pressure him to take back, you know, any of his sort of promises to testify. And because they're like they're really trying to like play off of his loyalty. And at the same sort of time, we see how Molly, as soon as she got out of Ernest's care, she immediately like improved, like her health just got way better, and she got back to normal basically. But they reunite, and it looks for a moment like, you know, maybe, just maybe, they can, you know, put, like, piece things back together, right? But... But it's really kind of a last attempt to save um, any sort of, like, remnant of what they had. Right, and, you know, like, they sort of, um, they drag uh, Ernest off, and he's like, oh, well, you know, now I won't testify... But then something happens. Um, one of the one of him and Molly's children passes, and at that point, that really sort of just breaks him because, like, that's you know, like that's your own um, blood that's gone, and at that point, like, really, all he has in um, his mind is that he has to. Um, 
sort of absolve himself of, you know, like he wants to get all the weight of what his actions, like he wants to just name them and then sort of get that weight off of him and sort of just whatever the consequences are or wherever they are, right? Like, he, like the, the guilt just so overwhelms him. And not only does it like kind of overwhelm him like in a familial sense, but, you know, the, this moment of grief kind of pushes him to the end that he, you know, does, you know, he fl- he flips again on Hale and he does sort of he, he uh, cuts him off. himself to, yeah, he resigns himself to, uh, you know, trying to salvage his family and, you know, and he does this by trying to, you know, make things right by testifying, right. which, you know, prior to this, there's this really like kind of interesting uh, like dynamic that starts to come up, right? You know, once Molly's recovery has begun, when she was admitted to a hospital that properly administered, you know, what she needed, um, there was this kind of like, you kind of got this impression that like um, Molly knew what um, Ernest was up to, right? And like the extent of what he had done, but there was still some sort of like... um, she still, to, um, yeah. She wants to. She wanted to give him another chance to um, redeem himself. So there's this willingness to um, look beyond what he's done, um, and you know, give him not extend like some sort of grace um, to understand, you know, what he's done, why he's done it. Right, right. And it's very sort of, you know, it's dependent on what he does, you know, with that, right? But she's still, like, even with that, like, because I don't, like, I don't think she, like, she can tell, obviously, that he's not the mastermind. And she just, she she wants to, you know, because there was genuine love in that relationship. She wants to give him, like, that one last sort of uh, chance. And he has to, like... Like, he really sort of shows a lot of backbone in this. But he has to sort of tell Hale that he doesn't want to do anything to do with him anymore. You know, he doesn't want him to be around his family anymore or anything like that. And, you know, it's really interesting because, like, there's a whole thing where uh, John Lithgow, he plays the prosecutor, asks him, you know, did you choose, like did you marry your wife because you actually loved her or because Hale told you to? And what Ernest tries to do is he really tries to take back his agency in that moment, even though Hale like, obviously like really tried to like point him in that direction, like as we see in the beginning of the film. He really tries to like claim agency over that moment and you know say that you know basically as soon as I met her. I was in love with her, which I think is one of one of like Leo's best scenes is this moment, right? And so you know that does a lot for him. But uh, Molly, she still really wants to know. She she wants to know what he put in her um, insulin to poison her because she's not like she's figured out that he was doing it right. And so the jig is up at this point. Yeah, and so like the thing is. She like it's really sort of like she she wants to just hear him like tell the truth, right? Um, and it's sort of a test in that regard. It reminded me a lot of uh, the end of the Irishman, where it's the whole thing of like how 
even though like he doesn't actually say that he feels any guilt at the end like you can tell that he has it all and he's just like he can't you know get the words out you know Frank Sheeran Mm -hmm. right it reminded me a lot of that where like you know he can't you know Ernest can't really admit to what he did um like and so like he sort of um loses her in that moment but it's the same sort of thing where like even though he doesn't say like like it's like you can tell on the inside he's like really broken up about it but then you know obviously the prosecution is successful and all the people get um taken away and then there's this really interesting sort of meta commentary thing that is in our uh, penultimate scene there's this like radio show that's in the 40s or 50s that's being recorded in front of a live audience right and it's this really sort of out there thing about you know sort of chronicling what happened after the fact of like the main events of the film right Right, and like you, like there's a whole thing about like you know Molly's obituary, and it's like we we have you know Scorsese um, reading it, and uh, like the whole big thing there is like even then like it's just sort of oh well she was a family woman and you know she died you know buried with her family, like there's no mentions of any of like the horrors of you know what happened with all those murders or whatever, right? Like it's just like a very sort of blank like matter of fact like cold obituary right well yeah and uh, so i'll pick up here um and what this scene kind of does um you know before we get to the bread and butter of it is that like you you just saw in the film uh for the past three and a half hours you saw this sort of um very you know human intimate picture of what um what transpired and the associating or the accompanying evils with everything that um, transpired, right? But right. here you kind of see it like condensed into this like caricature form of like this cartoony radio show without the car- with the sound effects and everything. Right. And, right. You know, everyone's like, everyone's viewing it from like their cozy little uh, cinema, their theater chairs, right? And right. it just becomes this very kind of awkward like image just compared to what you've just seen and how, you know, raw it was. Now it's this like sanitized sort of um, commodity you know, thing. Yeah, and um, with Scorsese himself kind of inserting himself into this picture, you kind of, you know, you kind of see this wrap-up of this line of thought he's been having in terms of his own mortality and his own ability to do what he can with the remainder of his remainder of his time, um, you know, alive in terms of um, cinematic output, because, you know, there's so much story to tell here in the external world. Right. right. But here in like the art form of it all, like there's so much, there's like what you end up in inadvertently, 
currently doing is that you turn it into this like this you know for lack of a better word the caricature of you know even you the the director with all his best intentions and efforts cannot you know 100% capture the um, the 100% of what the external world is you know the real world is trying to you know display with all its nuance and right. that's like I think that's you know Scorsese kind of coming to like the final the finality of like being resigned to the fact that like there's only so much you can do with a medium and like a medium is like a medium for a reason because like there's a certain reality here and then there's a audience you're trying to communicate it to here and then you're using this sort of this in between to you know communicate a certain thing but there's only so much you can do with it right, right. um and and so here like seeing the finality of that message just it's bone chilling yeah it's really like it's a very um inspired choice I, i've seen some talk you know because the movie's been out there and you know people talk about it online it's really sort of interesting to see how people react to it because it is like a very tonally different thing from the rest of the film. Um, but I think, I think it works um, because like, what it does is it sort of just shows, you know, like even the best intended things, like, like you said, they can just, at the end of the day, like, they won't come close to telling the full story and you know even if like you have no sort of interest in like profiteering off of you know the tragedy or whatever it still kind of is like uh like that that's that is ultimately what you're still doing when you're like making a movie about the sort of thing right and it's just it's really i don't i don't think a lot of directors would do this now granted there's some that you know you could do like that you could see someone like that doing but it's not it's not a very common move and i think it's going to really like of all the sort of stuff that like is in the movie i think like that sort of thing is going to really help it stand out and like fare well like against time if that makes sense right right and then, you know, after this, we get this really beautiful final shot. Uh, what it sort of does, because, you know, the film, it's titled, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon. And, you know, the whole sort of point of that, which is a very sort of poetic title, is, you know, in spring and April, you'll get your flowers, they'll start growing, right? But then, um, come May, you'll, you'll get these plants that all grow that will try to like overcrowd them and take all their sunlight and basically kill off the flowers and um so that they can take advantage right um you get this really beautiful shot of you know the tribe today that is you know framed as a flower and what it does is it sort of just communicates that they're still alive to this day and like they haven't been taken out and like they just they do still get to see the light of day now that we've covered the you know events of the film i do want to sort of just give our just like final real sort of thoughts on it give our scores i'll go first like i mentioned before this film you know it's not you know taxi driver it's not gonna be you know like goodfellas where like this will be like the sort of film for you know this 
specific thing, right? Like, I don't expect it to be necessarily, but what it does is it really sort of paints this large picture of what people are capable of doing, you know, in like a bad way, obviously, but also sort of how people can survive through really dark circumstances. It also does a really great job of examining the sort of internal conflict of complicated people and aren't able to act with the most strength in the world. I really think that this film has a lot of great pieces like you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, this isn't his best performance ever. This isn't even his best uh, performance in a Scorsese film. But he does a lot to flesh out um, Ernest Burkhardt as a character. And, like, you really get to see, like, for, you know, what Scorsese's take on him is. Like, you really do get to see, like, his whole, like, mindset and everything, right? And there's a really great performance from Robert De Niro where you get to see the sort of nuances of him, where he is a very sort of dark, uh, selfish man, but he's a sort of selfish man that also has a lot of respect for the people that he's going against. And, you know, if he wasn't, you know, the same sort of evil person that he is, you have to sort of wonder how things would go. Lily Gladstone, she really, like, like we mentioned before, this is like our first sort of exposure to her and anything, but she really owns her role and there's a lot of humanity to her role. Um, she has a lot of limitations in terms of what she can do as the film progresses. And like, she's not allowed to do all the same things that other actors are afforded to do but she really gets the most out of it, you know, regardless of her circumstances there. I think the film's runtime isn't a problem at all. It's really beautifully edited. There's like, save for like a couple scenes that are a little hit or miss. I don't really have any problem with that. I think the direction is, as always, really strong from Scorsese. Like you can tell this is a Scorsese film. I would say a lot of the casting in general, like they do a lot of great work with just casting like people that fit like perfectly in sort of 1920s Oklahoma, right? Like that's all great. I think the film is like on a, a cinematography level does a really solid job. It's not, you know, um, the most spectacular looking film ever, but it's really, it uses its um, environments very well. You know, the production design quality is really high. I would ultimately give this film a 9 out of 10 score. I, like I said, I don't think this is going to be like the, like, defining film of, you know, the decade or whatever. But I do think this is going to be a, like in the future, seen as a really important late career film for Scorsese. And it's going to be a film that shows his sort of range. And it's going to show, um, hopefully in the future, that it had influence and that, you know, similar stories um, will be able to be told um, and told well. And that's sort of where I come out on it. Yeah, um, so I'm just going to come out, you know, horses at the gate, right? Um, that it's a nine for me. Um, I think that's a really comfortable spot for me to put it at. It's, like you said, it's not like the movie-defining, like, 
it's not a decade defining movie, right? right. It's not going to be your, um, you know, your all time greats, right? But I think it is a f- fantastic film. I was very um, excited going into it. Um, you know, obviously, like it's been a good year, and hopefully, it can continue to be a good year for certain releases. Um, but, but this is was by far my, my favorite, most like expected like um, release, and I think it the um, how can I say this? Like, I, I feel like I got what I wanted out of it, um, and uh, with her, with like the performances done by. Um, DiCaprio um, and um, De Niro, especially in Gladstone, I feel like you you get something you know satiable, right? Mm-hmm. Very you know substantive, substantial right. there, right? right? And so there's um, it's a it's a tour de force of you know these. Um, the, this intersection of ta- this intersection of talent, right? right. And that's true um, from a production standpoint as well with Scorsese and his team, right? Um, mm-hmm. can, can you remind me the name of his editor? Right? Uh, Thelma Schumacher. Um, you know, even her um, performance is like in terms of like stitching this like kind of almost like this tapestry of this film, and I think it does. Um, you know, it does its job in not making it feel like a three and a half hour movie. Um, and there's just so, so many good things to say about um, the the um, overall ambiance of the film. Like you feel like you're watching it. Mur- you, you almost feel like you're watching a murder mystery. But you know, there is no mystery. Is the thing. Thick. It's um, sorry to cut you off. I think like the thing that really yeah, you're good exactly. It's like what I think it sort of thrives in is it's like there's no um, ambiguity over who's doing it, and then it's also like it's like so you know it doesn't try to like oh well you know maybe this person will survive or whatever. What it really sort of thrives in is this sort of knowledge, like it's like known dread that where like you know like this person won't be able to make it and like it, it, right. that position that it puts the, like you and you know as an audience member is really um powerful because it's just it's like you just you don't you can't like say hey like you know like don't trust this person or whatever and you just sort of stuck watching them in this really right. bad situation even the moments like where um, Ernest is on the stand, um, and and where and John Lithgow asks him to you know basically confess his sins before his wife and you know jury and Hale, right? right? It's like he admits like you know I loved her, but I also you know I did these things. Like my heart is like literally like, I'm a sucker for like relational dramas, right? So like my heart is like seized in that moment, and it's like. It, you know, you almost like you almost like wither in on your on yourself when you just hear like this like insane like juxtaposition of you know love for your wife and also but just great disdain for her humanity and whatnot and just disregard. Just, yeah, absolutely. And it's just it's you know, but coming out of it, I think it's going to be um, one of the best of this year, right? And I, I you know. 
um, whether or not um, it, it, I think it will age well in terms of you know what it is because you know this is kind of you know this first foray into like um, addressing like American history in a way that isn't like um, that doesn't you know actually antagonize you to like um, you know, adopt certain, you know, um, perspectives or, you know, dispositions on certain issues, right. You know, this lays it out for what it is. It's a matter of historical record and then you're left to deal with it and, you know, and cope with it how you may. Um, and doesn't, and it's not trying to, um, convince you of any certain persuasion, um, you know, politically or socially or anything like that. Right. This was a good review. Um, I really appreciate being able to talk about this film. I really appreciate the film being great. We don't know yet what we'll review next. It could be a couple of things. <laughs> really There's certainly some interesting things coming in the pipeline here soon, right? Right. But yeah, it was great doing this, and we'll see you all next time. Take it easy, everyone.